as Allison mentioned during the prayer, we're in our third week of the Christian season of Advent, and this sermon series is called Behold, God Makes All Things New. This title of this sermon series comes from the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. It's a declaration of God's character. It is who he is. Our God is a God of renewal. He takes old things, he takes corrupt things, he takes decrepit things, and God makes them good and new and beautiful. Two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus made a new exodus for us. The first exodus freed Israel from slavery, but the second exodus frees us from sin. Last week, we talked about how Jesus makes us a new temple of the Holy Spirit. The first temple was built by Solomon, and it housed God's glorious presence. The second temple is the church, the body of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is poured out into our hearts, making us a new temple. And this week, we are talking about a new kingdom that came with Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Kingdom or monarchy is a foreign concept to 21st century Americans. Our history itself is one of revolting against a king, right? The mere idea of one man or one woman in charge with ultimate authority over every decision in a nation is ridiculous to us. We think, well, we got rid of that. But for God's people, I think it's really important to recognize just how important the idea of kingdom is in Scripture. And it's not just important as for historians or something like that. It's important for our day-to-day lives, because one of the most important questions that Christians have to ask is this. Who's in charge? Who is really in power? At the end of the day, who has ultimate authority? Now, before I get to that uh, question, I have to confess something. I think this week I officially became a dad. Now, I know, I know that Evelyn was born in February. I realize that, but a a real transition happened this past week. Something shifted because I was preparing for this sermon and I was reading books and I thought to myself, this is not a joke or an exaggeration. I thought, okay, the beginning of my sermon is going to be based on this book I'm reading right now. Wait for it. The subject of the book is World War II, right? This got me so excited I've reached peak dad mode. I'm reading World War II history books, and I can't wait to share share with you interesting facts, okay? So here's the question behind this book. Yeah, I'm going to take you with me through this. Try to stay awake. Why did World War II happen? I think most of us would answer something like, well, it was Hitler's fault, right? Historians date World War II to 1939. That's when Hitler invaded Poland, right? Hitler and the Nazis are the obvious bad guys. If the war belongs to someone, it was Hitler's war. But the title of this book is called Stalin's War. Because the author's answer to that question is that the real bad guy the worst bad guy of all the characters and personalities involved was Joseph Stalin. Stalin was fighting Japan in the 1930s, years before Hitler even came to power. Russia fought both in Europe and in Asia. More soldiers died from Russia than any other nation involved. The USSR actually beat Germany, and Hitler was long gone, and Stalin ruled for years afterwards. 
They had far worse concentration camps than Hitler ever did and invaded multiple countries and somehow didn't come out as the true villains of the story. Stalin outplayed and outmaneuvered Hitler multiple times. So who was really in charge of the war? This book says it was Stalin. And the author's answer is based on a very simple premise. And it's this. At the end of the day, the one who's really in charge is the one whose will is done. Whose overarching plan comes to pass? Whose designs for the future become the facts of history? It doesn't matter what title you have, whether you're president or prime minister, or even the attention you get from later historians. Really, the one in charge is the one whose will is done, whose plan comes to pass. And so this author says, it's Stalin. Now, for any other dads who want to argue about this, we can take the debate into the foyer after church. That's not the most important thing about this sermon. The most important thing is this. What is the Bible's answer to the question, who is in charge? What does Scripture reveal to us about who is actually in power? Who has ultimate authority? And the reason why I want to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 is because God actually, in the Old Testament, picks someone to be in charge over his people. And this may be scandalous to us in the 21st century, but we need to know what this decision 3,000 years ago means for us, okay? So if you have a Bible, we're going to go back and read this chapter again, 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can look it up on your phone. There are black Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. 2 Samuel is the 10th book in the Bible, so if you're flipping from the beginning and you get to Kings or Chronicles, you've gone too far, okay? So the, the events described in this chapter happen a thousand years before Jesus, okay? So three millennia ago. We'll put these verses on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, okay? God says to a mere man, God says to David, the son of Jesse, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep around. You used to be a shepherd, but I took you so that you should be prince or ruler or king over my people Israel. So far, God says, I have been with you wherever you went, and whenever you faced enemies, I cut them off from before you. Then God talks about the future. He says, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them like seeds in the ground so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. God continues. He says, violent men shall afflict these people no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people. I will give you rest from all of your enemies. But then God goes one step further and he makes promises specifically to David, not just about the people, not just the family of Abraham, the Jews. He specifically makes promises to David. He says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, and they shall come forth from your own body, and I will establish this offspring's kingdom. Okay, we talked about this offspring, this son, last week. This is Solomon, and God says, I will establish his 
kingdom. And not only that, he will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of Solomon's kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. I want to focus on one word in this passage. Forever. I will establish the throne of Solomon's kingdom forever. Now, if you know of anything about the king before David named Saul, you know that his kingdom was not forever. You know that God took away the kingdom from Saul and his family. But clearly, this promise is different. In verse 15, God says, But I will not take my steadfast love from Solomon as I took it from Saul whom I put away before you. Listen to what he says to David's house and about his kingdom. Your house, your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This covenant with a particular man, David, and his sons is permanent. Now, if you keep reading in 2 Samuel and then First and Second Kings, you might think, why in the world would God make this promise to those wicked men? I mean, with a few exceptions, these men are not great guys. But ancient Jews saw this promise as a great gift. Despite those wicked kings, God would sustain this Davidic kingdom perpetually. And for centuries, Israel saw God fulfill this promise. David's family continued to have sons and grandsons and great-grandsons on the throne. Over 400 years, this dynasty continued. That is, until the Babylonians came in and destroyed the royal city of Jerusalem, and it really looked like David's family was destroyed too. The last of King David's line, King Zedekiah, was captured in battle while running away, and this is what happens to him and his sons. King Zedekiah was taken to the king of Babylon, that is Nebuchadnezzar, where sentence was pronounced on him. And they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his very eyes. They put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. This is very intentionally cruel, right? They not only cut off Zedekiah's line, killing both of his two sons, potential heirs, they take out his eyes. So that image is the last thing he sees. Now, it seems like at this point in the story, at the end of the book of 2 Kings, that God's promise is done for. Right? God said that the kingdom would last forever. He said the throne would be established perpetually. But it looks like, well, that's over now. But here's the good news. Those two sons of Zedekiah are not the only descendants of David left. David's royal family actually went underground during the exile. And we actually have the record of the family of David. They were very intentional. They scrutinized over every detail to make sure they knew who was in line after David. And we have this record in the opening chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. This is how the first verse reads. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son, that is the descendant, of David. Matthew painstakingly lists all of the descendants from David to Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. Think about that for a second. I've never thought about Joseph this way before, but he is, technically speaking, the heir to the throne. 
The, the Gospel of Luke says this. Ronnie read this directly for us. Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Joseph was the rightful heir to the throne. But he's not sitting on the throne. The man who is sitting on the throne is the illegitimate King Herod the Great, who was not from David's line. The early church historian Eusebius tells us that actually Herod tried to get rid of any records of the family of David. Listen to this. Herod, because the family of the Israelites contributed nothing to him, because he was goaded by his own consciousness of his base, base birth, burned the records of their families. That is, the families of David. Herod is trying to destroy any records that could challenge his authority, which means that from the moment of Jesus' birth, he is the heir apparent. I've never thought about Jesus this way. Sometimes you hear, you read this story in 2 Samuel about God making this promise of an eternal kingdom, and then it goes, goes underground for a while, and then Jesus suddenly appears in the New Testament. But no, these families kept these records and gave them to us. The first chapter of Matthew's gospel shows us Jesus is the next in line. This is why Herod feels so threatened by Jesus. This is why Herod is so willing to kill all of the infants in Bethlehem. This is why Jesus and his family fled to Egypt for safety. This is why they don't move back to Bethlehem, because it's dangerous there. We normally think of Joseph as this carpenter, silent in the background. We don't really need to know anything about him. He's just kind of a, a side character. But no, he was proactively protecting his son, who is the next heir to the throne, Jesus Christ, the son of David. I think this might be why Jesus actually waited to announce his kingdom for 30 years, because he gracefully waited for his father to die. And when he finally comes on the scene, what does he say so consistently in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? The kingdom is at hand. He's not talking about a generic, vague kingdom. He is talking about the Davidic kingdom restored. Evelyn is exci as excited about this as I am. The kingdom is back. They've come out of the shadows. They have gone public with Jesus of Nazareth. For the rest of his life and his ministry, sometimes we think of him as a miracle worker or a prophet, and both of those are true, but he's also a king. At every moment of his life, it's displaying his kingly rule. When he's baptized, it's like a coronation ceremony. God says, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. The cross is depicted as a throne. He's exalted up on it. He wears a crown of thorns. And what is the sign? How does the sign read above him? The king of the Jews. At his ascension, he goes into heaven and sits at the right hand of God to rule over all creation. There is an answer to the question, who is in charge? Jesus is in charge. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. Whether you live in America in the 21st century under a president, whether you are a Russian peasant living under the czars, whether you live under a chieftain 13 centuries ago, Jesus is in charge. All Christians for the past 2,000 years have said he is sovereign over all of history. And here's how he's different than all kings and lords and presidents and prime ministers. 
all of them, without exception, die. And with them, all of their kingdoms eventually come to an end. But death was not the end of Jesus. And death never came for his kingdom. Yes, he died, but he defeated death by his resurrection, and he has ruled ever since. And here's the most amazing thing. You get, picture this for a second. At the end of their lives, kings and rulers go to meet their maker. And just picture that for a second. Who's going to answer to whom? They answer to Jesus, not the other way around. Pick all of the tyrants in history, whether it's Hitler or Stalin, you think is worse. You know, they go to meet their maker, and they have to answer to him, not the other way around. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. At a human level, yeah, lots of rulers have influence, but every one of them, at the end of the day, will go to meet Jesus. And he's going to judge them, not the other way around. In the first century, it looks like Herod the Great was in charge when he massacred the infants in Bethlehem, when he burned the genealogies of David's family. It really did look like he was in charge. But Jesus outplayed and outsmarted him over and over and over again because Christ, our King, is actually in charge of human history. But here's the thing. Whether you're a Christian or not, I think authority is challenging to all of us, just the concept of it. Because these two questions are very different. The first one I asked at the beginning of the sermon, who's in charge? But the second one is very important to us today. Who deserves to be in charge? There's a difference between who has power and who we can trust with power. Who has actually earned their authority? Because maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I bet some others of us in this room have a hard time putting our trust in others. I mean, we have very low trust in every institution in our society and for very legitimate reasons. We don't put our trust in churches because of ministerial scandals. We don't put our trust in Wall Street because of the housing market crash. We haven't trusted politicians since Watergate. We, we don't feel like we can trust anyone. Who is trustworthy? Who deserves to be in charge? Some of us think that's really all that's left for us is to trust ourselves. I mean, I get that reaction. Sometimes I just want to throw up my hands and say, if no one else is going to be trustworthy, I guess I'm just going to have to rely on me. But if you have any idea of your own sin or shortcomings or limits, you know that that may not work forever. You may not know if you can even trust yourself. So who else is left to trust? If you're not a Christian, I think you should reconsider Jesus. Because every story I read in the gospel shows me that he deserves to be in charge. He isn't born into privilege in some palace. He's born to poor parents in the middle of nowhere, Nazareth. He isn't from the elites, the wealthy. All he did in life was he healed the sick and he taught the truth and he forgave sins. He was humble and gentle and lowly in heart. Just think about how he ruled on earth for those 33 years. 
Instead of killing people to acquire his rule, he died for the sake of others. Instead of conquering nations, he conquered our true enemies, sin and Satan and death. Instead of schmoozing the powerful, he called them out for their hypocrisy. And I can't even believe this has to be pointed out as a distinguishing quality of Jesus. But instead of abusing women, he actually treated them with respect and dignity. Instead of saying what people wanted to hear, he always spoke the difficult truth in love. This is the kind of king he was and is still today. He is in charge, and he deserves to be in charge. And when you actually obey him, you find true freedom. His constraints on our life are actually means to help us flourish. His rules are healthy boundaries within which we can thrive. He says no to the wrong things that ruin your life, and he says yes to good things that will deepen your life. Being subject to him as king is far more freeing than being distant from him. Now, for those of us who are already Christians, there's still a lot of room for improvements, right? Because we need to bring every aspect of our lives under his kingdom, under his authority. We try to hide some parts of our life from him. Yes, Jesus, you're king over area A, B, and C, but I'm just going to keep area D to myself because I don't, I don't know if I trust you with it, right? Christians, we do this all the time. But Jesus is not oblivious to the places we're holding back. So we've got to ask ourselves over and over and over again, am I still trying to be in charge? What territory have I kept to myself? How do I hand that back over to King Jesus? Because he is in charge and he deserves to be in charge. Our whole lives as Christians are figuring out how to bend our knee to Jesus to submit to his good and loving and wise authority. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we see at a human level so many people who are powerful and they don't use that power well. They abuse it, they use it for their own purposes. Father, we, we've just felt such a deep distrust to those who are in power. Father, I pray that you help us to not just respond by putting trust in ourselves, but by giving that trust to you. We know that whether we like it or not, Jesus is in charge, but we want to find freedom and obedience to him in living under his reign and rule. Father, we need your help each and every day. We want to keep some aspect of our lives under our own control, under our own authority. But Father, we need to hand that over to Christ. Help us, give us your spirit to recognize this incredible, renewed kingdom. You made this promise to David 3,000 years ago, and you fulfilled it. You sustained his family even when they went underground and when they came public with Jesus. We see that you've been in charge this whole time. And Jesus still reigns today with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.